This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And good morning. This is indeed the Deep Dive, and I am, as usual, Brooke Spector. I've, I've not changed my name, and the program is the same. And today, uh, we're very pleased to have an old friend and uh, magisterially important figure in South African media and communications. Uh, he's smiling when I say that because I can see his face, uh, but it's true. Anton Harbour. Uh, he's Caxton Professor of Journalism, or is it Media Studies, or is it both? It's both. Uh, at, it's both at WITS. But even more important than that, I think, is that he is one of the co-founders of the Weekly Mail, which now has morphed into the Mail and Guardian, as most people in this audience probably know. But way back when the Rand Daily Mail was on its last moments, uh, he, Anton, and Erwin Manium took their payouts and their hard-earned savings and uh, their fortunes, and they decided, having never run a newspaper before, that would be the appropriate thing to do to spend all that money and do that. And so they opened the Weekly Mail, which became the prime voice uh, in this country in opposition to the government in the media for years. Anton is no longer involved with that, but he is, uh, as as I said, he is at Vitz, and uh, he does a various does a variety of other things. Um, he's founded camp, the Campaign for Free Expression, which is described as a nonprofit dedicated to defending and enabling free expression for all of Southern Africa. And when he was just getting started, he and I had a conversation about just exactly what that might entail. And he also runs the Henry Mallow Foundation. Uh, which provides support for investigative journalists. And boy, do we ever need that these days, don't we? Uh, and it really is a pleasure and a delight uh, and a little humbling to have you uh, on our program today. Uh, as audience members know, we're, we're pre-recording this. Uh, we, we do, we're doing this on Thursday afternoon. So we're going to talk about state of the nation, state of the union messages but without the benefit of having yet heard the local State of the Nation address, but having already heard the State of the Union address in the United States. And we're doing that not because we because we don't necessarily want to talk about the, the precise content, the policies or the uh, the announcements in these things, but more the question of what are speeches like that for? What do they do? What are they supposed to uh, create in the way of change in a society? Or uh, what kind of mobilization are they expected? And what are the challenges in doing these? I mean, the, the, the one in the U.S. and the one in South Africa, which takes place a little later after we do this recording, uh, they have uh, a certain degree of pomp and ceremony uh, associated with them. I think the one in South Africa gets rather more of that than the one in the U.S. does, uh, unless they've suddenly dramatically changed the rules tonight. Um, but there are others around the world. The Russians uh, have a uh, presidential address at the beginning of the new year, uh, and that often goes on for hours. Uh, and in Britain, of course, the uh, the reigning monarch gives a Christmas message 
which is largely created by the governing party, so it isn't necessarily the queen or the king's own personal feelings. It's an expression of of of, of the national government. But let's talk a little bit or a lot about uh, the nature of these these programs. And if there is some time left over, I just want to throw a, a, a bit of a curve to you. Um, friends of mine in Washington have been experimenting with everybody's favorite new uh, software, uh, ChatGBT. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about how that's going to affect the nature of journalism and the nature even of, of truth. Um, because one of the one of the the topics that my friend gave me was a whole series of examples of how he could trim the the input a bit and get a a very interestingly different version of the essay that came out on the other side uh sort of reality bending as it may have been but with this uh let me welcome you anton thank you for joining us and uh, let's start with the nature of the state of the nation state of the union addresses uh, What's, how would you how would you view them? It's a great pleasure to talk to you, Brooks, as always, and thank you for the most generous introduction. You know, these speeches are important, not because of pomp and ceremony, but because a critical part of a president's job or a prime minister's job or any national leader's job is, I think, to create a narrative, a story about where the country is, where it's going, and a story that will get people behind the president, um, that will try and draw as wide a cross-section of the country behind whatever initiatives and plans the president has um, for the country. I think it's I think it's a very deep and important part of the president's job, and we've been feeling that in this country at times for its absence. In times particularly of anxiety or crisis or concern or economic pressure, um, we, we need a narrative that isn't just, oh my gosh, we're in trouble. Oh my gosh, things are difficult. Oh my gosh, there's a lot of problems. We need a narrative about where we headed. And that can't just be a set of facts and figures. Um, and that's why I call it a narrative. It can't just, it shouldn't just be like a boring account of of what's been achieved or a boring account of what's planned for the year in great detail. It needs to be an inspiring narrative that gathers us together behind one story, one picture of where we're headed and uh, what we're doing to get there. You know, um, you can, rem- you, you know, some of the most effective um, uh, political leaders around the world are those who are best able to deliver such a speech. Um, I think if you look at, at um, South African history, um, great rhetoric, great oratory has not been a great strength of our leadership. But if you think of um, Barack Obama and his capacity to get people behind him and behind his ideas and his views. Um, if you think of John F. Kennedy and his famous inaugural speech, for example, obvious candidates Winston Churchill during the war, um, using critical speeches to create that kind of national unity, that national gathering 
um, um, that is so important to um, the progress and success of a nation. Um, and those are just, you know, just some examples um, off the top of my head. Um, as I say, we do not, we, we do not have great examples in this country, although you might refer to Nelson Mandela's um, inaugural speech as being one that very carefully played that kind of role. But I think in South Africa, we're at a particular time. We're hungry for leadership and direction, and we're hungry to be brought together behind a solution to our, our, our pressing issues and problems. And that's, you know, the best scenario tonight would be that we say at the end of it, okay, we emerge from this understanding where we're heading and uh, with most of us behind it. Let's hope. We're going to take a short station identification and ad break, and we're speaking with Anton Harbour, uh, Caxton Professor of Journalism and Communications at uh, Wits University, and we're talking about State of the Nation, State of the Union addresses and why they matter and how they work. And we'll be right back with just after this message. This is The Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. We're back. This is the deep dive, and this is Brooke Spector, and we're speaking with Anton Harbor from Bits University about the utility, the importance, and maybe uh, even the fragility of uh, State of the Nation, State of the Union speeches uh, when they can deliver. It's extraordinary. Uh, it does, uh, as a phrase from the Kennedy administration, uh, pops into my head. In fact, uh, that this a particular speech, I can't remember which one, uh, was delivered to, quote, to move a nation, close quotes. Um, but sometimes they miss the mark, and sometimes they leave their audience, whether it's the political leadership or the country as a whole or the international leadership, standing there with their mouths open, puzzled by what just happened. But I'll, I'll throw out two things for you to, to, to think to as well. George W. Bush, who was not all that well regarded as an orator or as a political thinker, or let me say it frankly, a president and national leader, in a State of the Union address had one phrase in there um, which called for a mass campaign by the United States together with other nations to deal with the then rising and sometimes misunderstood tide of the HIV and AIDS epidemic that was rising around the world. And this, in turn, became what is now universally known, lousy acronym, but PEPFAR, President's Emergency uh, Program for AIDS Relief. And it has had an extraordinary effect on South Africa, among other places. And it was buried in the speech. It was probably the most important moment in that speech. And then, of course, uh, a local example, um, Tabo and Becky gave one speech, which I think almost everybody in this country remembers at least part of, the I am an African speech, in which uh, he channeled his inner poet and found a way to explain who he was and who the nation was. I can't remember if that, that was not a state of the nation address, but it, uh, it had the character of one, I think. It was the speech he gave at the signing and adopt, at the adoption 
of the new constitution in 1996, I think it was, six or seven, mm-hmm. of the final new constitution. He gave that speech. He did it rather than Mandela. From what I've heard, it's a version of a speech he'd given a number of times in his travels around Africa. So it wasn't entirely fresh, but it hadn't been heard much in this country. And it is a very good example because it created an identity for the nation. It created a story, a positioning for us all. It was inclusive. It made us all feel part of this country, uh, part of Africa, and it positioned uh, the country in relation to Africa. So it was not, it was a memorable speech. Um, not just because it was so poetic, but because it, 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 it was that successful speech that gets the nation behind the pres, the president, or was he at the time that oddly he was then the deputy president, I believe. Mm. Um, sadly, our state of the nation speeches are usually much more pedestrian. They're long. They can be very dull. But any decent president is going to always have one or two things to announce, one or two significant things. The example you gave of George Bush is one. But interestingly, that's not one he would use in a big way to sell to his electorates in America. It wasn't a vote winner. That's true. It had very little to do, in fact, with the electorate, except for for fundamentalist Christians who were looking for a way to help Africa without doling out foreign aid or giving into whatever excess was blamed for AIDS. Correct. Correct. Um, um, And so, and so um, um, you would, you would think that um, the, the president was, would always have one or two important announcements to make in that speech. I don't think that's the main function. But but clearly, you know, he's he's got the national platform. He only has it in this scale of a few times a year. And it's particularly important this year because there's a general feeling that we haven't heard from the president. Um, during the pandemic in its early days, we heard from him often in his so-called family meetings. And it was a very important part of his leadership in that time. And I think he got, at least in the beginning, a great deal of credit for the leadership he gave. Uh, in those um, family meetings, but he's faced quite a lot of criticism for his his failure to address the nation in the current crisis, and it goes along with the fact that he holds very few open media conferences where he engages in a Q and A with the media. So I think that gives added weight to to a time like this when he has the pulpit, the national pulpit. And that makes it important. In the U.S., the the example of the State of the uh, Nation, State of the Union address. Excuse me, I get the I get the two acronyms switched around in my head all the time. Um, I wish they would just all agree, have the same acronym, then we we wouldn't have to remember who's who. For a long time, although it's constitutionally mandated that the president shall, from time to time, uh, deliver to Congress uh, a message on the State of the of the Union. So it says in the Constitution. Uh, up until the early part of the 20th century, it was a written statement that was just sent over. You know, you could read it at your leisure if you were a member of Congress or ignore it or, you know, use it to wrap fish. But Woodrow Wilson decided to go to the Congress to read it himself directly. 
And then about, uh, I think it was about 10 or so years after Wilson began it, it was the first time it was broadcast live. And now, of course, it's impossible to escape it. It's on all the television networks and all the cable networks and all, and all the streaming platforms. And it's turned into a, a whole thing because the opponent, the opposing party gets an opportunity to say, wait a minute, wait a minute now there. Hold on, Mr. President. Here's, here's another way to look at this question and you're wrong and we're right. And there we go. But it does create that conversation with the country as a whole. The one thing that always seems to lag though is any way to link a speech like this, even a great one, with actual things that follow on and happen next. Um, um, yes, yes. So it's interesting. It makes perfect sense that it began as a statement because the primary media at the time would have been um, print. As as radio emerged, you can imagine them saying, well, now we can make greater use of the medium and so much more so when there was television and then Internet. Uh, it makes it much more performative. That's, that's the word I was looking for, actually, performative, yeah. Much more performative uh, because it presents a, a, a chance not just to make a statement but to engage with the public, whether it's through Congress or directly on the media. It's, it's a very important engagement. I, I read this morning that um, until quite recently in, in the U.S., it was considered completely improper for the president to be interrupted or heckled. <laughs> and it was only done. In, in Britain, of course, um, heckling is very much part of the parliamentary procedure. And the prime minister is usually tested by some harsh, witty and, um, and carefully planned, uh, heckling. In, a, in America, it was considered improper until quite recently when it was done, I believe, to President Obama. And the person who did it, whose name I forget now, was in fact uh, formally rebuked by Congress. 2012, actually. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, no. Um, but this time around, if you, if, if you watch the, uh, the Biden State of the, of the Union speech, uh, or watched it live, you'll notice that to everyone's surprise, because uh, Joe Biden is not usually thought of as, as the country's most illustrious orator, he set up a trap for the Republicans. He, he said something which he knew they would feel obligated to go boo, hiss, liar, liar, pants on fire. It, and it was a brilliant piece of politics, I must say. And, and he and, came and, right and, back and, at him. And, yeah, and so Biden is interesting because as we know, Biden grew up with a, and, and, and still struggles with a very bad stutter. So he's not the best orator, but he clearly manages it effectively and well. But he was particularly effective this time. And just in case others didn't see it, what happened was he said, he made it look as if he was saying it off the cuff, but I'm sure he wasn't, that um, he was not going to, you know, uh, there's no way they were going to cut back on Medicare and social services, but there, but there were Republicans who wanted to cut back. And they, there was an uproar. They said, that's not true. He's lying. We don't want to cut back. And he said, well, I love a conversion. So we all agree then we're not going to cut back on Medicare and, and social services. So he trapped them. It was, it was vintage Biden, a man 
whose greatest strength is his years of experience and knowing his way around uh, um, Congress and senatorial politics. I, I, when I watched it, I got up yesterday morning early, early to watch it. I, I, I can't help myself. You could tell he had the, the slightest whisper of a grin on his face when he did that, that here was, here was a piece of, here was a, here was bait that the, the fish could not resist. And they did. They, they went after it. And then the next day at another speech, he held up copies of Republican party members position papers saying exactly what he had claimed they had said. So now the whole news cycle, uh, ongoing news cycle is are the Republicans going to push to cut back Social Security and Medicare, or have they been converted to uh, Joe Biden's wisdom? We're going to take a quick station break. We're speaking with Anton Harbour from Vitz University, and we're talking about State of the Nation, State of the Union addresses their, and rhetoric more generally from national leaders. And we're doing this just ahead of the South African State of the Nation Address, which comes up later on Thursday evening. And we'll be right back after this message. This is the Deep Dive with Brooke Spector. And we're back. And this is Brooke Spector. And this is the Deep Dive. And my guest this morning is Professor Anton Harbour from the University of the Witwatersrand, and we're talking about presidential, prime ministerial, state of the nation, state of the union, national addresses, and what they do and what they mean and how they work. Not necessarily the policies that are enunciated in them, but the mechanism and how they, what they do for a society, what they do for politics, and even what they do for the person giving the speech. And Anton, we were, we were busy talking about verbal traps that have been set up now that in, in the U.S. president is probably never going to be able to get a speech like that off without at least one heckling moment from opposition party membership in attendance. But it, the clever individual or their speechwriter and staff set up a circumstance where they can turn that to advantage. Undoubtedly, there will be heckling of some type. Uh, in the State of the Nation address in South Africa on Thursday evening. What does Cyril Ramaphosa have to do to be able to deal with that, do you think? So that's an interesting point. As, 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 as we all know, there's certainly been periods when the EFF in particular has set out to cause major disruption in speeches like this and try and, in fact, steal the platform from the president to the point at which they brought in heavies to evict the EFF. But I think that in the long run, that did more damage to the EFF than to anyone else. And I think that's worth bearing in mind when he thinks of, when Cyril thinks about handling such a situation. Because I think although it got them a great deal of publicity and put them at the center of the stage, my sense was it's, it's that image of the EFF that's been a key factor in limiting their popularity, in behaving, I suppose you could say, like hooligans, rather than showing the kind of leadership and decorum um, you expect in Parliament. And decorum can include heckling. I, I think um, some good, healthy heckling is not a bad thing. Biden even showed how he could turn it to his advantage. 
It does test a president on their feet, which I think is an important test. But hopefully it remains within the parameters of reasonable parliamentary behavior and discussion. I mean, I, I don't think it does anyone any good when we see scenes of people being um, violently evicted from parliament. Of course, um, the location this evening is in itself symbolic. Uh, it being mm. held in the Cape Town City Hall uh, because of the the fire at Parliament a long time ago now. So just being there is a reminder what led to the burning of Parliament and the slowness in uh, dealing with it, uh, in repairing Parliament. It's it it's 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 like a, a raw wound on in an event uh, like tonight. And I think it puts a dampener on some of the spectacle. I, um, I, I did see one editorial calling for, calling on media to have less of a focus on the red carpet and the fashion because of the economic and political climate we're in. Um, and I was interested that they call on the media, not the parliamentarians to dress and behave appropriately to the mood of the country. I would hope that both those institutions, both MPs and the media, read appropriately the mood of the nation and gauge what what would feel inappropriate or irritate um, the public. Interesting you mentioned that. I I hadn't thought to make the link until you said that. But, um, I, I, of course, I've, gr- I've grown kind of weary watching people showing up looking like Cinderella's elder stepsisters, being showing up in uh, fake airplane pilot uh, costumes and, and what have you, both of which are true. But in the American State of the, of the Union address, uh, one of the more extreme Republican Congress women, in this case, Marjorie Taylor Greene, <laughs> Fortunately, she can't hear this, so she won't sue me. But she looked an awful, wearing her dress and coat, which had this very large white fur uh, collar and almost a hat. She looked to me for all the world like uh, an extra from Game of Thrones, the, the <laughs> one, the one who didn't get full picture. Uh, credit very often, but there she was. And she was the one who started, started the liar, liar screaming. And, uh, the, the combination of the, of the heckling and the interjection and the costuming that was at variance with everybody else in the room's look, which was business suits and, you know, uh, well groomed, but not extraordinary. They were not going out to a bar, you know, to a, uh, a, a glorious event afterwards. It really, in the case of South Africa, yes, the media does have the controlling hand on this. They could simply not position themselves outside to interview people on that red carpet wearing their ball gowns or strange suits uh, and simply focus on what happens once you get inside the hall. And that would elevate the conversation in a way and it would remove this festivity feeling in another. But the fashion tells you a great deal, Brooks. So yeah. I think there are legitimate questions to ask about it as the media. We know that there's that there's a criticism that the ANC has lost touch with its constituency, that it's in a it's it's in a self created bubble, that there's a huge gap 
between the mood of uh, the electorate and what we see f- certainly from some ANC leadership. So that is reinforced, that perception is reinforced if we see that kind of ostentatious uh, behavior and dress tonight. Um, and if I was standing there, those are questions I would be asking. Are we going to see an ANC that's, that's, that's reflecting the mood of the country? Um, or is it one that continues to be showy and exhibitionist and egocentric and performative and, and reinforce the sense of an elitist bubble? Is it going to be yeah. that or not? I guess the Marie Antoinette look is probably not the right look you want you want to to offer at a time like this, uh, with the uh, the flouncy sleeves and the, the only thing you won't have will be sheep, I guess. Uh, but and I, I take your point that uh, that there's a all right. Uh, we'll use one of those words. There's a semiotic quality to the way in which you dress when you show up to an event, even if you've said not a word. Just the just the signing of it itself. No, you know, and one wishes there were there were journalists on the red carpet, not saying who designed this magnificent outfit for you, but saying, "Tell us why you chose to wear this at this time. What is it you what is it you're trying to say? In other words, unpack the semiotics, as you're saying." I mean, I could easily see all of the parliamentarians for whom it is important wearing traditional garb. No, and, and then, then you would want to say, well, what's the message you're giving then? You yeah. clearly make a deliberate choice to send a message. My job as a journalist is to unpack why this person is choosing to send this message, but that person is choosing to pretend he's an Air Force pilot and can fly a plane and uh, wants to be dressed up uh, in that kind of comic outfit. Yeah, no, I spent a number of years in another African, a Southern African country, where it was seen to be not just acceptable, but appropriate that at major state occasions, you showed up in one or another variations of traditional dress, unless it was really cold because it was, you know, wasn't enough skin cover that way. And But for the most part, people did it. They didn't do it with any degree of, uh, what's the word I'm looking at, self-consciousness. They did it because it was it was seen as the appropriate way to behave because it represented a meaningful content of connection to a society, a tradition, a history, et cetera, et cetera. So that's, you know, real. I hope you're teaching this in your classes. I'm reaching the end of my academic career, so I'm teaching less and less, sadly. In those situations you're talking about where it's it's de rigueur to wear traditional clothing, then when somebody turned up in a fancy suit, the question would be, now why has he chosen to separate himself? Exactly, from I mean, exactly so. What I think is quite common here, and perhaps one of the most skillful um, ways of handling it, is you see some designer stuff that that links, that has elements of tradition. So that looks that looks quite modern and quite high design, but has colours or patterns or elements of tradition, and therefore it's bringing together the traditional and the modern. 
listeners who have joined us a little later than our introduction may have thought they have stumbled across a fashion discussion, but we're talking about the impact, the importance, the content, uh, the nature of State of the Nation, State of the Union speeches by presidents and prime ministers. And one of the things that, that we have been talking about, as you've heard, is the way in which the participants to the event, rather than the speaker, choose to represent themselves in the event. Uh, I want to change in the time remaining. I want to change our topic as I, as I hinted and turn our hand to the application, the computer application chat GBT. Um, for those who have already looked at it, it's this marvelous thing where you can feed the, the AI, the artificial intelligence software with the parameters of what you wanted to generate, whether it's a poem, rap, uh, uh, recitation, or an essay. A friend of mine has done all of these. He's, he set the chat GBT to write Japanese tanka in English as well as rap poetry or essays on topics. But the question that comes to mind is how easy it is to get what is not, what get is something that is not necessarily truthful or accurate or complete and how it's going to be spilling into academia and journalism and life more generally. And is this, how are we going to deal with that? I mean, in your, from your position as a professor of communications and journalism and a longtime practicer of the media, guide us on that. It's going to change things in a way we're struggling to understand. And let me start with a disclaimer. In my experience, whenever one tries to predict how people will use new technological tools or what impact it will have, we get it wrong. If you think back to what we thought about about mobile telephones, fax machine, the predictions are always wrong because people use them differently to what we expect. So with that disclaimer, I'll, 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 I'll try. I mean, there's no question it'll have a big impact on journalism and it'll have a big uh, impact on all teaching at all levels. You know, there's, there's just no question. All of us who use search, there's going to be a rationale to combine search. It's a re- you're already seeing it, to combine search with this tool so that instead of searching for keywords, you'll say to Google, generate for me three paragraph summary of this topic. Whereas before you would have, you would have searched for other stuff and then compiled it into what you needed or tell me the significance of, you know, X or Y and it'll give it to you in a, in a very digestible form. It works so well. It's quite breathtaking and frightening, in fact. And, and it's brand new. It already works in a way which, which, you know, knocked me off my chair when I got one of his productions. Of course. And plagiarism. We're going to have to develop new concepts of plagiarism because there's no mm. question. Certainly on some stuff, it can generate a, a basic um, a journalistic report quicker and more effectively than, than most journalists. And certainly it can produce a university-level essay very quickly. That probably wouldn't get an A yet. Maybe it'll improve. But, uh, but I think in most cases would be possible. So then we have to say, what is it that we add as human beings mm-hmm. um, to this? Um, uh, what we can add is originality, um, and, and we'll see the gaps in what it can do. 
yeah. um, that only humans can do for now. Who knows how it looks next year? Next year. Yeah. One, next of the, uh, one of the things my friend and I uh, did is sort of a trial. I was asked because he's an international lawyer specialist and I or law specialist, and I'd ask him a rather abstruse question about uh, aerial sovereignty with relation to the uh, the Chinese balloon over the United States. And he defined the question rather precisely and got three very tightly written paragraphs that not only led me to other primary sources very neatly, but helped phrase the the questions that I needed to understand in a way which I wasn't absolutely sure I had a handle on until I got the result from chat GBT, uh, which is rather frightening in its own way. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm being taught by a machine. Look, there's, there's no question it can research much quicker than, than we can. I mean, our capacity to research has been speeded up and expanded by Google and other search engines. This is now a next level. It can it can research much more comprehensively than we can. What what we're not sure of yet is its capacity to differentiate between false information and valid information. But my my guess is that tools will be developed to help it distinguish, probably more efficiently than you and I, because we have exactly the same problem when we Google something. Uh, we we have to verify uh the sources so it it's it's we're only beginning we we know it's going to have a huge impact um i think we're only beginning to realize just how big an impact this new technology will have we're going to take another short break uh we're speaking with anton harver from bits university uh the man who was uh significantly behind the creation of the weekly mail uh, with his savings uh, and his, and his, uh, yeah, probably a second mortgage on his house. Uh, and we'll be right back. This is the deep dive with Brooke Spector. And we're speaking with Anton Harbor, uh, University of the Bitfortress Front Caxton professor of journalism and media studies, communication, journalist of serious reputation, nationally and internationally. And as we wrap up our conversation, we've, we've talked a lot about State of the Union, State of the Nation addresses, and we veered into dangerous territory with chat GBT style applications of software. The last are, are shrinking or have shrunk and continue to shrink dramatically. People, uh, the age of our children don't read them. They don't read books necessarily. They use their, they use their smartphone for quick checks of messages from other places. This is changing the way people take on information and verify it if they can. Are we heading for trouble? Is there some dark rock filled shark infested water ahead? No, we've been in trouble for some time. With the shrinking of newsrooms, uh, the impact of social media on uh, on journalism and on the way people consume journalism, um, and on the the collapse of the traditional business model that funded journalism, mm. advertising based that is. So, so we've been in trouble for some time because of the internet and social media. 
The critical factor at the moment, I think, we're now moving towards new models for how to pay for journalism. One of those has been philanthropic philanthropic and foundation-based support. And the other has been probably more significant in the long run, users paying, subscriptions or membership fees. And we can see all outlets moving to make people convert to online subscriptions. And that changes journalism and the new technology will change journalism because what will be less important is, you know, the report on last night's football game or today's market prices and trends. A, because one will get that instantly through social media and B, because um, robots and and software will do that more efficiently than most journalists. So our focus will become much more where we add value um, so that people will pay for the added value. Um, um, analysis, um, explanation, um, spotting trends, joining the dots, to use a familiar phrase, to do what really only humans can do. I'm not saying machines will never be able to do that, but it's where we add human value and we have to be clearly adding value to get people to pay for it. Otherwise, who's going to pay for our journalism? We're going to leave it there. Uh, the shark-infested waters have a good captain sometimes, but uh, maybe not. Maybe they will. Uh, and I want to talk about this more in the future with you. We'll do a whole program on this some sometime in the future with our journalism. Uh, we've been speaking with Anton Harbour, Caxton professor at Bits University, a major figure in media and journalism in this country. And we will be back next week with another guest on another crucial and important topic, interesting topic, I hope. And this is Brooke Spector for The Deep Dive, and we'll talk to you next week.